This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Tom, Richard and myself have been up to on a Wednesday morning. A Wednesday that is petrol price day because it is the first of the month, the first of November. We've been getting the Economist take with Jean Walters of Emirates MBD and the Energy Experts take with Matt Stanley of Kepler. We've also been looking at a new legal decision coming out of the courts of cassation when it comes to defaulting on debt. It basically sorts those who can't pay from those who won't pay. Going into it in detail, we've had Georgina Delaney is senior legal consultant from Faisal Salem Advocates and Legal Consultants. And today is the day as well, 1st of November, that the doors... The hangars open at that new Terminal A in Abu Dhabi. Tom's been speaking to the regional boss of IATA, Khashif Khalid, while Richard's been taking not so much the skies as the roads, speaking to the outgoing CEO of Rolls-Royce, Torsten Muller-Otvis. Yesterday was petrol price day, and for commuters, Brandy, the news was good, was it not? Yeah, look, it was indeed. They're down 12% roughly uh, when it comes to petrol, around 4% for diesel. Uh, We've spoken to Matt Stanley this morning from Kepler, asking him how those moves reflect wider moves in energy prices. October was quite a volatile month. You know, volatility, implied volatility was up like 30% in markets. Energy prices have been falling linear with what's been happening in equity markets. We're in a correctional phase. We're back down to sort of $85 a barrel this morning on Brent. But what happened was during the middle of the month, obviously, there was some premium being priced into the market, which took a lot of people by surprise. Um, but that was usurped by what's happening in the macro environment. And sentiment is generally weak. Um, and refining margins to the difference between the price of crude and the price of the products coming out, it's all fallen linear, about 10%. Um, and it stayed that way throughout the end of the month. All right, so that's the energy market view. What about the economist view? Jean Walters uh, works for Emirates NBD. We've asked her what a fall in petrol and diesel prices will mean for the cost of living. UAE consumers and businesses had some positive news yesterday with the announcement that retail fuel prices in the UAE will be lower in November on the back of slightly lower average oil prices in October and declines in refining margins. This means there will be at least some reduction to the current cost of living with mid-grade petrol prices declining to 2 dirhams and 92 fills per litre down 12.3% month on month from 3 dirhams and 33 fills per litre in October. Diesel prices will also be lower. All right, so what does that mean for actual inflation numbers, however? What kind of impact, what kind of wedge of the pie, I guess, does fuel make up when it comes to our inflation picture? The reduction in November petrol and diesel prices should be reflected in consumer price inflation in November, with transport being the second largest component in the Dubai CPI, with a weight of just over 9%. It is, however, worth noting that the transport component in the CPI includes a variety of things, not just consumer fuel prices, including things like airfares and the cost of vehicle maintenance. Uh, Jean Walters, economist at Emirates MBD. Also been looking at the airport story in more detail, Tom. You've been speaking to Kashif Khalid. He's a man who knows. He spent a lot of time uh, not just looking at the airport and thinking about it, but what he's, he's been Tom Cruise, hasn't he? He's been running around the corridors. So what they, I was trying to think when, yeah, when we were talking to Kashif. So International Air Transport Association, is that the right, the right for the yeah. acronym? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but they obviously would have to give it some sort of sign-off, wouldn't they? 
Well, no, because they're not a regulator. They're a lobby group. Uh, there okay. will be that equivalent. It's probably got a French acronym. L'Association des Aéroports Français. Whatever. Okay. Um, I made that up, but you know, but but there will be a regulatory body, but they are not it. So, but IATA would have vested interest in seeing what the sort of experience was like, etc. Okay, mm. cool. So, yeah, because we asked Kashif about, you know, um, if he'd been there or if he hadn't been there, when when's he going there? He said, oh, I've been there for many times, been working with them closely, etc. throughout the whole process. So, uh, he is excited about the fact today it goes live to everyone else uh, because today Abu Dhabi International Airport Terminal A begins its operations. Uh, phase one of three phases in, to increase passenger capacity in Abu Dhabi up towards 45 million passengers a year. So we started by asking Kashif, who's the regional director for the Middle East and Africa of IATA, what impact will the new Terminal A have on Abu Dhabi but the region as a whole? In terms of aviation infrastructure, you know, the, the new terminal in Abu Dhabi provides quality infrastructure. The impact obviously will be on fostering connectivity, offering a better passenger experience to travelers in and out or transiting through the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, but also is a, is a testament to Abu Dhabi's commitment to delivering world-class quality infrastructure. The new terminal is amongst the ranks of, you know, infrastructure standards such as the Louvre, the Emirates Palace. It is an iconic design and will certainly set, you know, a new benchmark and quality infrastructure for aviation assets globally. Kashif Khalid giving us his thoughts. Prompted another question from me. I didn't put it to Kashif. I'll put it to my esteemed colleagues. So, ceremonial flight from Etihad a couple of days ago. Uh, all sorts of inaugural flights coming up through the new terminal. Are they inaugural flights? And therefore, do they get the big fire engine welcome? Or oh. is it just because it's a terminal opening you don't? Okay, so normally when you get the... It's the water cannons, isn't it? Yeah. They sort of shoot water, get like going through a like going through an airplane drive-through th- drive <laughs> cleaning service um, when they land, don't they? So it's when you land, not when you take off. So I don't think everywhere around the world is going to be like, oh, they've come from that new terminal. Let's give them a clean. I'm just thinking it's not very cop, is it? It's not very sustainable, is water. it? Yeah, I don't know if it's 20... I don't know if you can get away with it in 2023. 20, it's not... The sort of aviation equivalent of woke, is it? Well, well I, actually, I was on an inaugural flight with Etihad a couple of weeks ago, wasn't I? I went to Copenhagen. Did you get wet? No. I can tell you what they are doing, though. Uh, there will be, on this first Etihad flight to New Delhi, a celebratory cuisine menu, themed decorations, and a photo booth to capture this historic moment. Okay. No mention of water cannons, though. So maybe the, maybe the water cannon is just, like, so, like, noughties. Um, and... We've moved. So even Copenhagen, they've got loads of water up there. You thought that. <laughs> it did rain. Oh, there we are. <laughs> so you, it, it, it's it, a natural one. It becomes obsolete. We had Storm Babbitt instead, <laughs> which did the job perfectly nicely. Very quickly, we were talking, speculating. So they're going to change the name of the airport, aren't they? To the. Zayed International Airport. Which begged the question is the code AUH going to change? And Kashif said no. You can change the name of the airport, but the code stays the same. Russell wrote in earlier on this morning with an interesting point. He says, AUH is the IATA designator code. In fact, there is already an Abu Dhabi airport 
with Z in the IATA designator code, the original airport, Albertine, is A-Z-I. Uh. Russell, thank you very much indeed. Fun fact from Russell. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we've got a new legal decision about how debtors are dealt with here in the UAE. In the studio to explain it to us, we have Georgina Delaney, Senior Legal Counsel at Faisal Salam Advocates and Legal Consultants. Georgina, it's lovely to have you. Good morning, Brandy. Thanks for having me. And I want to get the exact language, so I'm going to get you to explain for us what has changed. Sure. So this is decision number four um, from the Higher Committee of the Court of Cassation. Um, And what the decision states is that um, imprisonment for a debtor is prohibited unless. Um, So unless the creditor can prove um, that the debtor is solvent so that they have the money to pay, unless they can prove that they have hidden their funds or, you know, tried to dispose of assets um, or that there was a payment plan in place, instalments being paid and for no justifiable reason, um, they cease to pay those instalments. So as I'm reading this, this separates those from won't pay from those who can't pay. Yes, exactly. Um, So previously, the law was that if payment has not been made on time, uh, then the claimant or the creditor could apply to the court um, to issue an arrest warrant. And that was it. And then if the payment wasn't made, um, the manager of the company, the individual, the shareholder would be imprisoned. And this is different from what we've already seen in terms of decriminalisation of bounce checks. Yes, exactly. I guess, um, Brandy, that complements that um, because, you know, there are cases where you have contracts, but PDCs, post-dated checks, uh, have not been issued, yet the um, debtor has defaulted on the payment terms of the contract. Okay, so as you say, the onus is on the creditor. Exactly. For the case to be made that someone could pay and is choosing not, not to. to. How do they do that? Um, so what what they must do is they must apply to the court, to the execution judge um, and ask him um, to conduct an investigation on their behalf to appoint a financial expert um, and they can also ask the court to issue orders um, where they can do full credit checks um, on the debtor. So for example, they uh, the court can issue a letter to Dubai Land Department to see if there are any assets. Um, the court can issue an order to their bankers um, to see their bank statements. And they can also um, seek, you know, to see their last year's or last couple of years financial statements. OK, and this is also separate from what we have seen. A lot of changes in the laws around debt yes. with bankruptcy protection. Yeah, so I guess, you know, a bankruptcy um, would be something very serious. So this is a step really before bankruptcy. It would be when you're dealing with viable businesses. Um, But for example, businesses, you know, they they can be seasonal. Um, So it may be a cash flow issue that the the owner cannot pay, they cannot make the payments. However, it is actually a viable business. So they would not be looking to go the bankruptcy route, um, but they may need, you 
know, that breather, maybe to come up with a payment plan or a little bit of space to make that uh, payment. And how is that decided? I mean, once this is put in motion, what happens next? Um, so th- this would be down to the financial expert appointed by the court. So the dis- really, they would then um, come back with their findings to the judge and make a suggestion that, yes, this party can pay, but they're refusing to pay. Or no, you know, they've they've got payments coming in from a big contract. However, it will be delayed for three months, you know, to, to allow them that, uh, that breathing space. Could we see... Um, decisions being made, forcing people to sell assets. He's got a Maserati. He needs to sell it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's one of one of those letters can also go to the RTA to see what vehicles are registered uh, under the company name or under the shareholder's name. So, yes. What effect do you think this is going to have in practice? Um, in practice, I guess we have to see, we have yet to see how this will actually played out, play out. Um, the law is only in force, I think, eight days today. Um, however, what I, what I see, you know, initially it, uh, in the short term, it will drive litigation costs up um, because more due diligence will need to be done up front on counterparties to avoid this situation in, you know, in the first instance. Um, And then I see for, you know, for genuine debtors um, who, where it is a cash flow issue, um, you know, obviously they have a chance to rebuild their business. Um, For those who have also, you know, been imprisoned. Um, like in the last one week, a thousand people have been released from the jails here in Dubai um, as a result of this law. So, you know, they can rebuild their lives here. It gives them, it gives them a second chance. What could it do for business confidence? Um, I think in in terms of business confidence, you know, even from attracting uh, people from abroad to to do business, when they see a softening of the laws here and, you know, that there are not such harsh penalties in place, uh, I think it makes, um, you know, Dubai a more attractive place to do business. We've got a number of questions coming in for you. This one from Jeff. Is Mm -hmm. this exactly the same for individuals and companies? Yes, it is right across the board. Uh, Another one, and someone said, please don't use my name on this. Does it apply to arrest warrants that are already issued? He says, I'm unable to pay um, alimony because I lost my job. The judge has ordered me to pay, um, but I don't have the money. So for uh, warrants that have already been given, what's the status? Okay, so the simple answer, um, this person has has mentioned alimony. So it also applies in the family court. So it applies across the board. Um, And in this instance, the individual can apply to the court to have the arrest warrant uh, removed. How big is this going to be? I mean, anecdotally, how common is the issuance of 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 warrants for non-payment extremely common extremely common so this this will be this will be big because a lot of the times where the creditor suspects that the debtor is just withholding funds um that will be their first port of call you know to to approach us or approach the courts and say issue the arrest warrant and you know that obviously focuses the the debtor's mind very quickly um so it you know it 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 uh, it eliminates that and a lot more fairness will be applied where you know a proper investigation is conducted by the courts you mentioned the cost of litigation though i mean if if we look on on lawyers fees <coughs> if we look on the other side of this what does it actually mean for creditors does it raise the cost potentially of 
of extending credit and, and lending money? Um, in in terms of I, I don't I don't think it, it raises the cost if you're if you're saying lending money um, for the or like extending of, credit to business for, partners for and, yes for for um, I think for banks and institutions they will always have that due diligence in place anyway um, for individual companies yes um, they they will need to do more due diligence around their counterparties up front before signing contracts. Uh, someone asking whether or not um, there is a flaw on the size of, of cases. Is anything too big or too small to be covered by this? No, absolutely not. Um, nothing too big in terms of being too small. Um, obviously, you would need to weigh up the cost of litigation versus um, the, the actual amount that's outstanding. 20 seconds left. With you, what happens now? Um, so what happens now, as I've said, um, you know, we've had so many people being released from from prison already. Um, there will be more in the coming days. Um, and also we will see uh, people like our caller who will be applying to the courts to have the arrest warrants removed. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Georgina Delaney, Senior Legal Counsel for Faisal Salem Advocates and Legal Consultants, talking to us about that decision. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, right about now, Abu Dhabi International Airport Terminal A will begin operations. In fact, a number of uh, airlines shifting their services to the new Terminal A as of today, uh, with a view to increasing passenger capacity in and out of Abu Dhabi. Significant uh, impact on the aviation sector here in the UAE, and I'm sure further afield as Abu Dhabi uh, yet does yet more uh, to emphasise uh, its position as an aviation hub. Let's get some thoughts on f- this one from the Regional Director, Middle East and Africa, of IATA. Kashif Khaled has been uh, kind enough to join us live on Microsoft Teams this morning. Kashif, thanks for your, very much indeed for your time. Um, in your opinion, in the House view of IATA, what impact will this uh, new Terminal A have for aviation, uh, A, in Abu Dhabi, but B, the region as a whole? Well, thank you. Good morning. Uh, in terms of aviation infrastructure, you know, the the new terminal in Abu Dhabi provides quality infrastructure. The impact uh, obviously will be on fostering connectivity, offering a better passenger experience to travelers in and out or transiting through the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, but also is a, is a testament to Abu Dhabi's commitment to delivering world-class quality infrastructure. The new terminal is amongst the ranks of, you know, infrastructure standards such as the Louvre, the Emirates Palace. It is an iconic design and will certainly set, you know, a new benchmark in quality infrastructure for aviation assets globally. I mean, just in terms of the practicalities here, yet we know uh, that once it is fully open, it will have the capacity to handle up to 45 million passengers a year. In terms of getting to that point, I understand there are three phases. Is that right? Correct. So it's going to be a phased opening with a handful of carriers starting operations as of uh, today, and then a scale up up of operations from Etihad Airways in two phases. And hopefully by the uh, middle of November, it will be fully operational with most airlines operating out of uh, the new terminal. But just to build upon that, new infrastructure also entices additional airlines to serve the country as well. So we've recently heard that Air France is resuming flights. British Airways has uh, uh, looked at scheduling their flights for the 2024 season as well. So quality infrastructure also gets the interest of global operators and it will further foster connectivity, tourism, and business for the UAE. 
I mean, in terms of um, weighing on your greater experience here, the, the, the impact the terminal will have in terms of passenger experience, I'm assuming that as one of the most modern terminals, this is going to be one of the big focuses? Absolutely. So uh, besides being an iconic uh, piece of infrastructure, it's it's got tr- tremendous amount of investments in passenger experience and technology. There are new biometric solutions which help facilitate passengers at various touch points using their biometrics, their facial or other uh, um, means, shall we say, so that it's not only an iconic terminal, but it's very efficient as well. And it uses space uh, in an efficient manner to be able to process more people with minimum queuing and elevating the service levels as well. Um, a lot of people also making um, a lot of noise about the shopping experience, the shopping and dining experience within the new terminal uh, as it starts operations today. Again, is that part and parcel of the demands of the modern travel experience? Oh, absolutely. Airports have become more than just uh, travel notes. They're shopping malls, they're experiences. And I think with the various offerings that the government of Abu Dhabi has placed, whether it's in the F&B, the duty-free retail or concessions, but not, not only that, the level of investment the Abu Dhabi government has made into the aesthetics, the art and different offerings is going to resonate very well with passengers. And through the efficiency of processing, the terminal also gives passengers gr- greater dwell time in duty-free and commercial areas which will ultimately benefit all stakeholders at the airport. So we understand that from November the 14th, all 28 airlines currently operational and and into and out of Abu Dhabi will be operational from Terminal A, which begs the question, Kashef, about what will happen to the existing terminal. Have you got any insight into that? So from an airport's perspective, I think, you know, having infrastructures is a good challenge. You can use that for potentially uh, other operators using it for low cost, repurposing infrastructure for commercial purposes, such as uh, office space or additional storage. So I think Abu Dhabi has done their homework quite well. I'm sure, you know, additional infrastructure, especially in capacity constrained environments, is a good challenge to have. But typically airports look at using uh, previous uh, airport terminals for either low cost or cargo operations or uh, other commercial purposes. Also had the order coming through yesterday from President Sheikh Mohammed about the renaming of the Abu Dhabi International Airport. It will be known as Zayed International Airport from February the 9th of next year. Uh, That prompted a question from a number of our listeners about airport codes. Does that change the AUH airport code? So from an IATA perspective, the AUH code for now remains, but in terms of the designator as well as the name of the airport, uh, that is something that could be changed. And it's it's something that reflects across global distribution systems so that the airport name is reflected as per the new uh, designator as opposed to changing the airport code. So the airport code remains as is. Um, a lot of chat also about the infrastructure of the new Terminal A and the impact it will have as, a, as developing again or reiterating Abu Dhabi as a hub for aviation here. Does that therefore mean it will complement the services here in Dubai and other international airports across the UAE? Absolutely. So new infrastructure fosters not only connectivity, but competition as well. It gives passengers greater flexibility and choice. And also for global travelers that are looking at transferring or transiting through the airports within the Middle East or the UAE region and offers them more flexibility and options as well. But having said that, it also diversifies the economy away from uh, traditional passengers and gives visitors the ability to make a stopover, uh, spend some time in the UAE, enjoy the wonderful offerings that both Abu Dhabi and Dubai have to offer, and also provides a more connected, uh, let's say, economy, uh, which in our view is going to benefit many users within the ecosystem. 
Kashif, have you been through Terminal A yet? If not, when's your first flight? Well, I'm privileged to have spent a number of years working on that terminal project, and I have been through that facility <laughs> many times, including recently. So it's absolutely uh, stunning, and I encourage everyone to book their flights through Abu Dhabi just to experience the new terminal. We will take that advice. Kashif Khaled, thank you so much indeed. Regional Director, Middle East and Africa at IATA. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right then, interview now, part one with Torsten Muller Otvush. He's the global CEO of Rolls Royce Motorcars, but not for much longer. He's retiring on December the 1st. He's been there 14 years. Performance not too shabby. The day he walked in the door, they were selling 1,000 cars a year. This year, they will sell 6,000. He's also doubled the average selling price of those cars to half a million dollars. I began by asking him the simple and obvious question why now? Yeah, I mean, after nearly 14 years, I am reaching in November the magic number. The magic number is uh, my age, 63, and that is within the BMW group, the final, final age when you sort of should retire, and that happens now by the end of this year. So that's the reason why I'm off uh, up to new adventures, new things to come. And by intention, I also choose uh, the Middle East to be my final, final, let's say, station of that entire trip, because this region here is not only important for our business, but is at my heart since a long, long time. So in terms of the things you've learned along the way, well, you've learned how to sell expensive cars because sales have gone through the roof under your tenure. But what have you learned? I learned a lot about luxury and what luxury means to people and how diversified luxury can be. And what makes things being luxury. And uh, also I've witnessed how luxury changed in uh, clients' minds. It's not any longer only important to deliver a great product. It is far more important to deliver what I call an outstanding experience, something that indulges your soul and uh, which you enjoy as being treated super special. That makes luxury today. So in terms of not just selling more cars, and sales have been very significant under your tenure. You're also selling to different people. The age profile, even the gender profile has changed. Talk me through that. Yeah, first of all, because you're always saying we're selling cars. We are not in the car business. Uh, We are in the luxury goods business. Technically, it's right. It's a car. But the reason for acquiring a Rolls-Royce is very much luxury and that we are offering a canvas where you can express yourself on. And uh, that's the main reason. Coming to the clients in itself, that has changed massively. What I did when I joined the company nearly 14 years ago, I interviewed lots of private banks worldwide because they obviously know best how ultra high net worth individuals will develop and might be structured uh, five years down the road. And their prophecy was far younger, very different to make money uh, in five years, so 2015 around, uh, very much fintech, very more relaxed people, uh, people who are not any longer into buying luxury brands for the pure bling status. And it absolutely came as they predicted. So we are now addressing a very different client group for reasons that when I joined, uh, the average age was 56, very much male, very much chauffeur uh, sitting in the back of a Rolls Royce. Uh, 80% were chauffeur driven, 20% were self driven. And this is completely swapped to 80% behind the wheel now, the owner himself, and 20% in the back. And uh, we also catered for far more dynamic, un, I would call it more 
intriguing product, be it with race. Uh, we invented Black Badge. Uh, we brought Cullen in quite a debate at times that we would enter the SUV segment as Rolls-Royce Motorcars. So quite a long, long walk to cater for a very different league of clients today. How important has the Middle East been in the, the success that Rolls-Royce has enjoyed under your tenure? Always very important. It's a significant region, not only in terms of sheer volume or sheer magnitude of business, but very much also as an inspiration for Goodwood, because this region here is world known for the most fantastic bespoke cars uh, you can imagine. There is so much fantasy here in clients' minds when it comes to yeah, specify a Rolls-Royce and making sure that this is a truly unique one-off piece. That's also the reason why we've invented and came with private office first here to Dubai, our, let's say, room for clients to be in direct contact with Goodwood and to specify their car. So pure volume, we are seeing the Middle East going from strength to strength to strength. And uh, we are probably around next year, we will be probably around 15% easily total volume comes from the Middle Eastern region. 15.15. And it's extraordinary that, that the UAE is such a big part of your market. It's in relative terms a tiny country. There's 10 million people living here and yet Abu Dhabi and Dubai combined. One of your biggest markets Partly, of course, that's because it's a wealthy part of the world. But one thing I've been told a couple of times before is the safety. There are many parts of the world where you wouldn't want the attraction that a Rolls-Royce brings for safety reasons. You can't walk down the streets of Mayfair with the Rolex on these days without getting it ripped off your hand. And that's London. Is that a valid explanation to you? A very valid explanation, unfortunately, I must say. And uh, that is perfectly described what happens. We are seeing lots of European clients flogging to the UAE for exactly those reasons, yeah, that they don't feel any longer safe, that the kids don't feel safe at school, that you are worried about burglaries and that you are worried about your property. And here is a safe haven. And for that reason, you see more and more ultra high net worth individuals coming to Dubai or Abu Dhabi. And that obviously boosts our business in a very nice way. Let's talk about some of your new models and the switch to electrification. Of course, traditionally, we think of these Rolls-Royce cars as being these huge V, I don't know, 8, 10, 12, however many uh, engines. And they're wonderful and they're powerful, but they do, of course, consume an awful lot of petrol. That raises a sustainability issue. Your first electric car is rolling off the production lines now. Talk to me about that dynamic and where the future is. I mean, we are famous, world famous for our beautiful 12-cylinder engines and we still love our 12-cylinders, make no error, and also our clients uh, love the 12-cylinders. But obviously, you need to look into the future and the future definitely tells you that uh, the day comes for an end of combustion engine Rolls-Royces and we would also never downscale uh, combustion engines to four cylinders or whatever that wouldn't fit properly to a Rolls-Royce. On top comes that uh, uh, electrification fits perfect to the brand. There was even a prophecy from one of our founding fathers, Charles Rolls, who said that electrification, that was in 1900, yeah, so 123 years ago, he said that electrification is perfect for a car. Uh, but obviously it will take a long, long time until fixed charging is available because he was so intrigued by it because it is silent, 
talky, no smell, as he said, and beautiful in its waftability. And that all describes very well what the new Spectre is, our electric Rolls Royce. This is waftability and magic carpet ride on a complete new level. Uh, clients who were already behind the wheel and drove the car are saying this is Rolls Royce 2.0. And uh, exactly this is when you experience Spectre. For us, it was important that the car is very first a Rolls Royce and second an electric car and not the other way around. So what you feel, what you smell, what you experience, everything that pops into your senses is Rolls-Royce when you enter into a Spectre and when you drive a Spectre. And then, surprise, surprise, the car is electric. Uh, last question, what's next for you? I know you got the tap on the shoulder from HR when your 60th, 63rd birthday was looming because that's the policy at BMW. I'm guessing you're not just going to go and sit on a beach and read a book. I could be wrong. What's next? No, that's uh, not on my list to retire in its traditional sense and read books at beaches uh, or do whatever. Uh, I will uh, look into new ventures, but not 24-7 CEO roles or whatever any longer. So probably more in the league of non-executive director roles, advisory board roles. That's uh, what I'm very much interested in. And uh, due to the fact that I've learned a lot, over the last 14 years about luxury, uh, about how ultra high net worth individuals behave, what is important for them. I know how to run a business and uh, I've made that business very, very successful. I think there is quite some knowledge in my brain I would like to provide also to others. That's what I want to do also for reasons to keep me mentally fit here over the next years. Might that be in someone like the UAE or Saudi Arabia? A lot going on here at the moment. Uh, who knows? Let's see. I probably think I'm coming back here also to the UAE. That's for sure. Torsten Muller-Ottvosch there. He's the global CEO of Rolls-Royce Motorcars, but not for long. He steps down on December the 1st after 14 years in charge, talking to me at their office in Dubai yesterday. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.